If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispie, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Going for your first ever run around the park. Literally running errands all over town. Running for the finish line and your personal best. If you run, you're a runner. Find the shoes and clothes to run your way at newbalance.com slash running. New Balance. Run your way. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Trello help power global collaboration for all teams so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone because individually we're great, but together we're so much better. That's why millions of teams around the world, including 75% of the Fortune 500, trust Atlassian software. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com. That's A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com. Atlassian. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. From the groundbreaking novels of Virginia Woolf to the economic theories of John Maynard Keynes, the Bloomsbury Group shook up British culture in the early 20th century. So how did this small but daring set of intellectuals, artists and writers come to be so influential? What united them? And did their tangled love affairs ever threaten to drive them apart? Well, in today's Everything You Wanted to Know episode, the art historian, critic and biographer Francis Spaulding answers these questions and more in conversation with Rebecca Franks. In this episode, we're going to be exploring the Bloomsbury Group. So perhaps let's start by setting it in its historical context. Francis, when was the Bloomsbury Group founded? It was founded in the first decade of the 20th century. And it was a group of people who came together simply to talk and have uh, what they called in those days at homes. I think that term is still used by some people, meaning a sort of gathering of people to have a social kind of meeting and exchange views and ideas. But it's not that they were very much in a period of time when there was quite a lot of protests going on, not just in this country. And it's worth remembering, I think, as an example of what was happening elsewhere, 
that the Italian futurists were formed in the same decade. And they were very much rebelling against the long shadow cast by the greatness of the, you know, the Italian Renaissance. And artists were getting fed up of it and wanting to escape from it. But even in England, there were people like Rupert Brooke, who was rather protesting against the way people lived. He liked walking around with bare feet in the garden when he went out to live at Grantchester rather than Cambridge. And his friends around him were called the neo-pagans. They too were wanting to live differently, to dare to do things uh, in a different way. So the Bloomsbury's weren't alone at this time in this feeling that things had got rather tired and there was too much received thought, you know, agreed views that needed to be challenged. And that's what makes them, I think, exciting at the time and still exciting to, for us today. You mentioned protests, so they very much wanted to shake up the status quo. Well, take, for instance, the period beforehand. They were living in the Edwardian period at that time, and before that was the Victorian period. And the Victorian period placed a great deal of emphasis on public virtue, doing good. Not so much attention to private life, where quite a lot of sort of covering up and, and so on went on. And because of a sense that there was a need for a freshness of thought, a refreshment in one's integrity, the Bloomsbury's decided they would give much more attention to personal relations on the belief that unless those relations were well thought through and in good condition, that only then could you start to tend to turn your mind to the, to the larger things that affected society as a whole. And as we continue our introduction to them, obviously their location was quite important. So where did the Bloomsbury Group live? The location is very important to, to early Bloomsbury, these early years, because at the centre of this group was uh, two sisters called Vanessa and Virginia Stephen. They're better known to us today as Vanessa Bell, the painter, and Virginia Woolf, the famous novelist. But in 1904, their father, Leslie Stephen, died. He had a large house in Kensington, which was a very sociable area for the sort of upper middle class so at the very end of his life, he was knighted. And these two daughters had to hold tea parties to entertain his visitors. So when he died, an enormous sense of oppression fell away because he had got rather emotionally brittle in old age. So soon after he died, Vanessa decided to move her siblings, because she had two brothers, as well as her sister in Virginia, to Bloomsbury. So Vanessa Bell found 46 Gordon Square, moved her three siblings in with her and said goodbye to fashionable Kensington. Bloomsbury was not so fashionable, but it was still quite full of sort of middle class uh, professional people. So it was respectable. And it was there that they first sent out these cards saying, we are having it at home at 10 o'clock. That means after supper and we'll be drinking cocoa. <laughs> I don't think they drank cocoa every time, but it was a funny thing to see uh, on their first one of their first invitations that they sent out. And so who came? Well, the people came from Cambridge, who were students alongside their elder, Vanessa's elder brother called Toby Stephen. And they brought with them a different kind of conversation to what came with people from Kensington and from their aunts. And the two didn't really fit together very well. After a while, the aunts fell, fell away and the young men from Cambridge began to solidify and become regular customers of it, for it. So that is how Bloomsbury began. And that is where, simply through talk and through thinking, they began to uh, challenge the way they lived and what was going on around them. 
that leads us to the first question from our listeners. Belle Buchanan would like to know who were the members of the Bloomsbury Group. You could perhaps tell us what did they do? <laughs> Certainly, yes. Well, who were they? Well, I've already mentioned Vanessa Bell and Virginia Woolf in their previous uh, life as Vanessa and Virginia Stephen. But there was also a man called Listen Strachey, who was a very good friend of Toby Stephen, these, uh, the elder brother I mentioned at Cambridge. And he was a very lanky, ill-looking person. But while he was at Cambridge, he was encouraged to uh, let rip his rather salacious sense of humour. So he was very funny and witty and he pretended to be um, quite hysterical at times, which was done also in a very amusing way by use of hyperbole. So who else was there? Well, there was the cousin of Lizzie Strachey, a painter called Duncan Grant, and he was uh, very beautiful. He had a wonderful voice. It was almost from another era, beautiful pronunciation. And people fell in love with him. As a result, young and old, both sexes fell in love with him. So he was quite a significant figure. But then was a chap called Maynard Keynes, or John Maynard Keynes, who eventually became famous as an eco economist and had a very different kind of mind to some of the others. Very, very sharp and rational. But Lytton Strachey sometimes thought he was, his mind was a bit like that of a typewriter. I don't know what he meant by that, but it's a very different kind of person. But they all got along. Who else was there? Let's think. E.M. Force was very much on the fringes and not really at the centre of the group. Quentin Bell, who was the son of Vanessa Bell and Clive Bell, thought that E.M. Forster should be down there if you drew a diagram of Bloomsbury, but on the very fringe. They greatly admired his novels and they admired, he quite often stayed in, with them in places where they lived. So he's sort of there, but he wasn't a regular in that sort of way. Clive Bell I've just mentioned by mistake because he was another friend of Toby's from Cambridge. He was uh, the, the one that came probably from the most wealthy family. His father was an owner, owner of a coal mines and so on. And he didn't really need to work in his life except he worked every day at reading and writing things. So they all believed in work as being a very important vehicle or channel through which you discovered more about yourself as well about the world. There was one member of the group called Saxon Sidney Turner. And he was very definitely part of it in the early days because he was so much at one with them all before the First World War that he would quite often just turn up on the doorstep without any invitation or for any reason and would be let in. He'd probably say something for close on 16 hours without saying hardly anything at all. But when he did talk, he was passionate about music and he could remember almost every opera he'd seen and who had sung in it and uh, what date and where it, had, where it had been performed. So he was a rather interesting chap, but uh, rather silent. And they just happily tolerated this kind of extraordinary personality and rather fond of him. But when he got, got a job, finally, and I think he was in the Treasury, but in the Treasury he's supposed to have succeeded, so they say, in doing absolutely nothing at all. <laughs> so he sort of disappears a bit, and we don't quite know why or where. And I hope one day some brilliant person will manage to write a biography of Saxon Sidney Turner. And, and Roger Fry, he was a member too? Oh, Roger Fry is terribly important. He wasn't one of the original ones. In 1905, I think, was the first meeting of the Bloomsbury's, and by 1906, it had definitely become a, a solid group, a, a very dedicated group of friends, partly because Toby Stephen had gone on holiday to Turkey and he'd come back ill with typhoid and, and, and died. 
And the loss of this young man was uh, felt by all of them as a real terrible tragedy at that time in his life, still in his 20s, and greatly affected the two sisters, as you can imagine. So they all gathered round in a way that was now indissolvable. <laughs> and from then on, there was a tremendous loyalty within Bloomsbury to the friendships that bound them together. Roger Fry came slightly later because although he'd met briefly Vanessa Bell beforehand, he didn't properly meet them until January 1910 when he was standing on Cambridge Railway Station and there was Clive Bell and Vanessa Bell waiting for the same train. And they talked on stop all the way as the journey back into London. And later that year, he mounted the first post-impressionist exhibition called Manet and the Post-Impressionists. Britain had paid very little attention to what was going on in the art world in Paris over the last 30 years. They'd only vaguely sort of taken on board the Impressionists, but weren't very impressed by them. And then along came the post-Impressionists, fantastic artists like Van Gogh, Gauguin and Cezanne. And Roger Fry brought large numbers of these paintings to London. And he did something very similar, a more updated version, including Picasso and Matisse in 1912. And these absolutely rocked the art world. It made what English ideas of beauty seem completely out of date. Everyone was very offended. They thought it was an attack on the idea of the notion of beauty. And they shouted and laughed and pointed their umbrellas at these paintings. The same artists today would cause an absolute blockbuster, long queues around the block to get in to see them. So you can see how things were suddenly turned over in the art world by Roger Fry. And so Bloomsbury had drawn him into their circle. Clive Bell was very keen to help with the exhibition. And they were all involved in one way or another. And there was, of course, a raging press damning the exhibitions and saying this is the end of the world in terms of art. And so suddenly Bloomsbury, having been hidden away in the quietness and privacy of a drawing room, having their discussions, having their conversations, they were suddenly brought out into the public world and into a very public debate. And this was before any of the others had actually sort of written anything or published anything or quite found their feet in the world. But they were suddenly made to look around them and be very much part of the moment. One person I have yet to introduce is Leonard Wolfe. He was the only one who really had very little money indeed. The only way that when he went up to Cambridge that he had any money at all was that he won a, won a sweepstake. He was the only one who, too, who didn't come from the what... Noel Annan once called the intellectual aristocracy. In Leonard Wolfe's case, his family before his father had been shopkeepers. So they belonged to a different part of English society you know, than, than the rest of the Bloomsbury. And he recognised this for many years. He said that the rest of Bloomsbury could arrive at ideas and thoughts that he never could because they had inherited something a mental inheritance, an intellectual inheritance that he didn't automatically have. Interesting that when he came back from uh, working for the Foreign Office abroad, he married Virginia Woolf and therefore has a huge job on his hands because of her occasional mental illness she had to take charge of. But he also wrote and he founded the Hogarth Press, which eventually became a very serious and quite large publishing house. And he never, ever published a book purely for commercial reasons. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. 
That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. The group's members worked in, in different fields, as, as you've mentioned. So what united them? Did, did they share particular values and ideals? It's extraordinary how united they became. I've mentioned the effect of Toby's death, but they all did different things. Writers, artists, economists and so on. And they did not have a manifesto. They didn't have a set of rules by which they would identify their membership or anything. And they weren't even politically on the same side always. They didn't hesitate to disagree in conversation because they knew they were a group, they were a solid group, and they could trust that the others would listen to them and answer and that they could have these really quite deep conversations at times. So it's a it's a puzzle, really, what held them. But it does seem to have been conversation was tremendously important to them all. The ability to listen, to hear, to debate, and gradually to become more assured in what you really thought was the possibly the good life, you know, what would make things work, not just for yourselves, but for society as a whole. One of the extraordinary things about Bloomsbury is that uh, it lasted so long. If you look at other groups, you can usually identify the moment in time they came about and what it was at that moment that they were wanting to either change or dissent from. But once that objective had been achieved, most groups fall apart. But Bloomsbury went on retaining its identity. And one of the things is, I think, the importance of houses. And I would in particular mention 46 Gordon Square, where they first began to meet, and then the house Charleston, which was found for Vanessa Bell and Duncan Grant and his friend David Garnett during the First World War, when both of the young men had to find war work, and farm work was one considered to be what you could do if you were a conscientious objector. She was told about this house called Charleston. It was a farmhouse to let, and it sat at the foot of the Furl Beacon and the South Downs, very, very beautiful part of England. And that lasted a long time because after the war ended, they asked to keep on the, the lease to it, 
and they would go back in the holidays. And when it came to the Second World War, Vanessa Bell, Clive Bell, Duncan Grant all went and lived there permanently. So it became very much associated with Boomer Street. There were friendships, romantic relationships, family relationships in the group. And I think it's the writer Dorothy Parker who remarked that they lived in squares and loved in triangles. So how did these relationships influence and impact the group? Well, it's a very big question, of course, but an absolutely fundamental one too. Because of their conversations and the openness within the group and the trust between them all, and the ability, therefore, to, in their letters especially, to one another, to analyse their own feelings and those of others. They were very open to, to thinking about what was possible and what was not. At one point, this is a simple definition of Bloomsbury, is that they were all in love with Duncan Grant, which is a bit of a overstatement, but nevertheless has in it a modicum of, of truth, in that he did have an affair with the younger brother of the Stephen family, Adrian, and, and with uh, Lytton Strachey, and with Maynard Keynes. <laughs> and somehow these were all managed without too much hurt uh, going on. The one that got most hurt was Roger Fry, because... After Vanessa Bell was aware that her husband, Clive, though excellent in many ways, had gone back to his mistress who he'd had before he married her, the marriage was, after all, one that had been made in the wake of Toby's death and perhaps hadn't been one that was best for her. But she retained great respect for, for Clive and affection for him too. And as you can see from what I've already mentioned, he never became out an outsider. He remained within the inside of Bloomsbury and in the Second World War was living with Vanessa Bell and Duncan Grant in the same house very happily. But Roger Fry fell in love with uh, Vanessa Bell while they were abroad with others on a holiday, and Vanessa Bell fell very seriously ill. And Roger Fry, being a very practical man and very responsive and good with his hands and all these sort of things, and believing everything was possible, took charge and got her back to good enough health to go back home again. And during that time, of course, he fell in love with her, and she began to fall in love with him because he was this man who was changing the whole course of art in England and full of ideas as to what was possible. So that had to be managed somehow on the understanding that Clive was really rather attentive elsewhere. But the other next thing that happened was that Vanessa Bell found herself headlong in love with Duncan Grant, knowing he was homosexual, and they agreed, it was a mutual agreement, that they would have a child together. And that's another aspect of Bloomsbury, which when the child is born, she's called Angelica, creates another aspect and problem within Bloomsbury. The one area where there was definite hurt was that when Duncan Grant pushed out Roger Fry in Vanessa Bell's affections, and Roger Fry found that extremely painful. Yet they rarely fell out. I think you've mentioned that perhaps it was only on one occasion that they had a real argument. I wondered if you could tell us about that. Yes, I'm sure they did have arguments other places, but perhaps they didn't get as much into the letters. The one moment when they, there was a very definite falling out within the group was at a dinner during the First World War when Keynes was working for the Treasury and obtaining money from America to help Britain with the war that, that, that going on at that time. And he was accused by one member of the group, at least, of using his intelligence to add to the money that was being wasted on this terrible war. And was, was that ethically right? And of course, I'm sure he, he stuck to his guns and there was quite a sort of debate about it. We know there's quite a number of conscientious objectors or people who were pro-peace in Bloomsbury. It was a brutal war, wasn't it? 
brutal and expensive. Our listener Alex Plotkin has asked, was John Maynard Keynes the only senior British government official in the Bloomsbury Group? And I'd just like to add to that, how did being part of Bloomsbury shape his work and his outlook as, I assume, the only economist in the group? <laughs> yes, but on the part of government officials, of course, Leonard Wolf spent seven years in Ceylon, helping to govern Ceylon. So he, he was very experienced at colonialism, and he, he increasingly felt that it was a, a not a good system to dominate another country in that way, and wrote about it, and did much to uh, protest against it. But he also saw some of the good that was achieved, and he had, in overall, perhaps a balanced view, but definitely did not want to go back to Ceylon at the end of his time there. With Maynard Keynes, he very much admired artists. He set up something called the London Artists Association, which guaranteed a select group of artists, not just Bloomsbury ones, but uh, others as well, a certain payment every month on the grounds that when they did have a show, something would be paid back at that stage. But it was to give them the security to know that they had enough money to go on painting as they wished, rather than go and find jobs elsewhere. That was the first beneficial act towards artists, but of course he ended up helping found the Arts Council after the Second World War. He helped build the uh, Arts Theatre in Cambridge, he was very pro-encouraging culture in all, all, all sorts of ways, and he was very much at the centre of the government of this country. I mean, he was a central figure talking to various uh, people in all, all fields because of his understanding of the, the economy and what can be done to move it, change it and improve it. In terms of their work, how was it shaped by the geopolitical landscape in, in the first half of the 20th century? Well, like many intellectuals in the 1930s, they were radicalised by what was happening in Europe, watching what Hitler was doing after 1933, particularly 1936, in, uh, when he sent troops into the demilitarised zone of the Rhine, which transgressed the agreement of the Versailles Treaty and I think the Locarno Treaty. So that was really something where, at which France and England should have got together and protested and said no. But they weren't ready, they weren't sufficiently in position to do this, and so they did nothing. And Leonard Wolf knew that that meant there would be an even bigger smash-up later on, and he predicted that war was inevitable after that date, I think about March 1936. Leonard Wolf, of course, advised the Labour Party on international relations and was a, another key figure I mean, the thing about Bloomsbury is that they all, as a group, in a way, sort of move into the centre of English life, whether it's in the arts or economics or uh, international policies. That's partly why Virginia Woolf's diaries that she kept through much of her life are so fascinating. It's not just about them, but about all that's going on at the time around her through the 1930s. a very interesting period, and the... Uh, move towards modernism in art was very pronounced at that time until things became very bleak and then suddenly there was a sort of reaction against modernism among artists. Well, they were all part of that. And of course, at the same time, Virginia Woolf was reinventing the novel, which she announced she would do even before she'd published her first novel. It's extraordinary, isn't it? I will reinvent the novel, she said, and she did in various different ways through her books. And she also began writing these political essays, A Room of One's Own. It's actually a book, but it's, uh, it still is a major document within the history of feminism. 
And later on, she published um, Three Guineas, which takes a more extreme view of what needs to be done to create equality for women. What did their contemporaries think of them? Well, it's hard to say because as they became more prominent in many fields and therefore a force, a really significant dissenting group at that time, even though they came from within the sort of establishment, most of them came from homes that were part of the establishment, they were hard to pin down and they still are today. But of course, some gradually increasing admiration for what Virginia Woolf had achieved as a writer, extraordinary talent had emerged and you can't read a Virginia Woolf novel without being changed by it not in any all too obvious way but just your your whole awareness is somehow changed you walk the streets differently of course she got good reviews she got uh, some bad reviews but there was a certain distrust of Bloomsbury in that it seemed a clique and that it was seemed above the rules they lived in a way that didn't seem to follow the accepted customs and rules so there was a sort of love-hate thing that began to develop around them. But I think, and I've watched this over many years now, and I think that the admirers of Bloomsbury and of Virginia Woolf now far exceed those who are critical in judgment. What's so astonishing in this today's world is to discover that annual conferences on the work of Virginia Woolf take place in countries far distant in, where people come from the culture and the country is very different and yet they seem to find in her writing something really necessary and essential to our understanding of the world. What influence did the group have on taste in in Britain between the two wars? I can remember growing up in a little village where most of the people's um, houses inside were sort of brown and green and cream. Magnolia, I think they called it, as being the fashionable thing. And if you walk into people's houses or flats today, you get a riot, you often get a riot, wonderful riot of colour, particularly in younger people. And I think it's sudden recognition that colour matters hugely and it can enliven the way we live. And the Bloomsbury Group first realised that when Roger Fry, Vanessa Bell and Duncan Grant set up the Omega workshops in 1913, unfortunately just before the war broke out, they said, old fabrics that they designed which were incredibly modern they pushed William Morris's beautiful textiles and fabrics right out of the window and something much more open more sort of alive more true to the period fabulous though the William Morris tapestries and textiles are and they also encouraged people to allow their own personality to be felt through the choice of decorations and colours used. So it's a great breakthrough. They really broke through uh, what was acceptable. And they got many commissions to, to decorate and design murals in people's houses and flats. And this has gone on ever since, I think. Has any of their work been overrated? You can read some critics who describe some of the artists in the group as third rate. What do you say to, to that point of view? Well, there are some wonderfully rude reviews of the Bloomsbury work. Uh, people like Brian Sewell, do you remember that art critic? He was very good at vituperation and he was vile about the Bloomsbury's as being a sort of little tea party group of people. I remember when the Tate put on a magnificent exhibition called The Art of Bloomsbury, round about the millennium. And uh, one critic, uh, Philip Henshaw, whose work I, I love, but he said he was misquoting that they belong to the history of publicity. They don't really matter. But on the whole, I think that if you were to look at Bloomsbury art as a whole, taking in mind decoration as well as their paintings and so on, I think you see that there is an enormous lot of pleasure is given 
out from it. It's about enjoyment. Why Roger Fry promoted French peasant art while he was running the Omega workshops was because he thought it was free from mechanization, the industrial effect of something produced mechanically, and gave much more expression to joy and uh, pleasure. And that's something that has always been at the heart of Bloomsbury work. Most welcome. You've mentioned the, the sort of long after, or the long life and the long afterlife of the group. I wondered if you could tell us about the Memoir Club and how that related to the Bloomsbury group. That is, is a very interesting phenomenon. And they seem to have felt during the war, when they were all a bit cut off from each other, that they needed to go back to those days when they met regularly as a group and to promote that sense of belonging to this group. Important to have that feeling, I think. And so Vanessa Bell sat down and painted, I think, a picture probably based on what was the first meeting of the Memoir Club, founded, I think, in 1943. By that time, Bloomsbury had lost three really main key members, Lytton Strachey, and then Roger Fry in 1934, and Virginia Woolf in the first year or two of the war. So what she did when painting a picture of this group was to put three paintings on the back wall of the room where they're all sitting. And they are imitations of actual paintings, obviously much smaller in size, of uh, portraits of those three people, drawn from memory from, of the actual portraits that were painted of them. Basically, it was... All the main suspects, first at Bloomsbury, plus one or two of the younger generation. And the painting is now hangs in the National Portrait Gallery, where it can be seen every now and again. And it's certainly in their collection. They reproduce it quite widely. That picture can be seen in the National Portrait Gallery. Where else can listeners go to see the art of the Bloomsbury Group? Well, after Roger Fry died, one of his executives, his sister Marjorie Fry, donated what was called the Roger Fry Collection to the Courtauld Gallery. Collection of works, some painted by Roger Fry, but others by his Bloomsbury friends and French painters he knew. Painted furniture, the inside of a virginals, the lid of it is painted, and some pottery and other things, African art that he'd owned and collected. It's a fascinating set of things because it reminds you of all sorts of things that that Bloomsbury Art did, but also the fact that Roger Fry was one of the first in this country to very sincerely admire African carvings for their intelligence and ability to create three dimensions. And he was the first to therefore to say this is not just ethnographically interesting, it's also artistically, aesthetically very interesting, and let's see its beauty. And when you think of the Bloomsbury Group, are there any particular qualities you associate with them? Yes, I think one of them is a sense of tremendous richness, aesthetic and emotional wealth there that is available to us. Because they were a clique, people often feel resentful of that and feel, oh, well, you know, I don't come from the same class or have the same moneyed background or anything. They, they weren't that rich, in fact, but... Um, they did somehow create a wealth, and it was a, a wealth in the mind and rather than in actual life. And I think one of the things that comes out of all their discussions, and if you particularly read Virginia Woolf's novels or Leonard Woolf's autobiography, you just have your a broadness of thought comes across. And I think that the dominant thing that comes out is this belief in the need for tolerance, for acceptance of others and willingness to... Um, take things on board that 
you might want to initially feel you wanted to reject. So an openness, a freshness is created. That was Francis Spaulding, who's an art historian, critic and biographer, who's authored biographies of Vanessa Bell, Virginia Woolf, Duncan Grant and Roger Fry, as well as writing a general introduction to the Bloomsbury Group which was published in 2021. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Jack Bateman. 